today changes my whole entire life. Welcome to Gridability, a podcast about the power of perseverance, overcoming seemingly insurmountable odds to attain the life of your dreams. I'm your podcast host, Adam Clausen, and I am happy to be joining all of you today. We have an amazing guest with us, good friend of mine, goes back many, many years separated for many of those years. It's great to be able to finally join him, even if it is via Zoom, Chad Marks. What's up, Adam? I appreciate you bringing me on. And yeah, we've been friends for a long time. So I guess we're going to get into some good things today. Absolutely. Man, this this episode was right on time because uh, the United States Sentencing Commission just recently announced a couple days ago that they're going to go ahead and expand the use of what's called compassionate relief, compassionate release. That's how you and I both got, both got here. So we each have uh, amazing stories. It's funny, many of the times when I have told my story, I reference you and not always by name, but I say, man, this friend of mine, who had a situation was about to be released and I don't want to go into your story, but you know, um, it actually raised some concerns for me. I didn't know if I was going to walk out the door. So to have both of us here today is pretty amazing. I'd like to, you know, talk a little bit about your background. It's one of those things that you and I really haven't had too much of a chance to, to get into that. So I figured we'd start from the beginning because what this podcast is all about is you know people see the end result and we're both here the result of many many years of like straight up just hard work right and belief you had to believe in yourself um and you had to get a lot of other people to believe in you too right like this didn't come easy 100 percent. i used to tell people in prison you know some guys would laugh i tell people man i'm getting out of prison and they would laugh and i say if i don't believe it no one else will you know so so true, man. So true. So why don't we do this? Because um, I'm always curious, and I'm sure the rest of our listeners are curious. Tell us a little bit about your background. Let's take it back kind of to your youth. I know for me, mm. what prepared me for all of the challenges that came, you know, throughout that 20 plus years that I was incarcerated, I can often point to like athletics, like I got in the habit of winning. I was athletic. It gave me different opportunities. Like I had a competitive advantage. So I had that like going into this, you know, getting a life sentence and it kind of helped me to deal with it. So I'm curious to know what in your background, maybe in your youth, kind of helped prepare you for all the challenges that you ultimately faced. Okay, I'll, I'll do that. But first, you know, I'll just tell people my name's Chad Marks. Um, at the age of 24, I was sentenced to a 40-year federal mandatory minimum in federal prison. And I went to prison and never gave up, right? I became one of the best jailhouse lawyers in the federal prison system. Um, but, you know, same thing as you. As a kid, I was always a fighter. Grew up in a bad neighborhood, um, always involved in sports. I was the captain of my wrestling team in middle school and high school. 
was an amateur fighter, actually fought Rocky Juarez in 92-93 in the Silver Glove um, Nationals in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, but always, always an athlete, man, baseball, football, whatever it was. And I think like you just mentioned, you know, you, you got that fighting spirit. And when the government, you know, when you get a sentence, which I earned, I earned a, a prison sentence, but I don't think I earned a 40-year sentence. So, I mean, that made me want to fight, made me not want to ever give up. And I always felt like, you know what, no one's going to fight for my life like I'm going to fight for my life. So going into prison, I got right into the law work immediately in the county jail. And I'm reading stuff and I'm finding out stuff. And I'm like, hey, look, they made a mistake here. They made a mistake there. And that's just what had pushed me forward to keep fighting for my freedom. I used to tell people in prison, I'm going to do something every day to get out of here. I don't care if I'm doing a program. I don't care if I'm writing a senator. I don't care if I'm writing a congressman. I don't care if I'm writing an article for prisoners' legal news, criminals' legal news. And I'm sure, you know, you've read many of the articles that I wrote that I would send to FAM and, you know, they would publish some of them. But I always did something to try to get out of prison. And, you know, I did over, I completed over 150 rehabilitative programs, got a college degree in prison. I mean, that was all part of, you know, me getting out of prison, me doing something to get out. So I was going to say, you just covered a lot. And for those who don't know, what is the prison, like, what does it look like in prison as far as programs, education? Because you made that sound fairly easy. Like, yeah, you know, I got a college degree. I took some programs. So here, I'll give you an example. Not always easy. When they brought in that college program, right? They told me I'm not eligible because I had a 40 year sentence. So I couldn't go to college. Mm -hmm. So I ended up doing a correspondence course and paid for my own college. As far as getting into programs, a lot of times, you know, I was a firm believer that reentry started on the first day, right? And I'm sure you teach that. But, you know, the Federal Bureau of Prisons was preventing that rehabilitation because it was almost impossible to get involved in programs. So I started going right to the warden. Hey, I need to get in this program. And in one of the first programs that I got into was the warden was teaching a program. He was teaching a business class. What? The warden was actually teaching that class at Raybrook. So, you know, I, once I got into that class, I mean, the warden kind of looked out for me, man, was pushing me into other programs, making sure I got into them. And I told him, you know, I want to get out of prison someday. And, and, you know, I think I'm worthy of doing that. And I ended up writing a reentry program with Cedric Dean for Raybrook. Um, and once we did that, I think, you know, that kind of just allowed me to do a lot of things that I wanted to do as far as programming and stuff like that, wow. but not always easy. <laughs> Listen, none of that was easy. Everything that you just said, you know, and, and I know, you know, to look back on it, um, I, I don't think we give ourselves always enough credit because you made that sound very simple, but as you were explaining that going to a warden, you know, agreeing, first of all, to be in a warden's class, right? That's not always seen as a popular move. But what you're talking about is having the courage to be out there every day on the front lines talking about, listen, I'm going to do what I need to do to make sure that I make it out of here. And few people on the inside have the courage to do that, one, to believe in themselves, but then two, to actually do the work. And what you're saying is, you know, doing sometimes what's not always popular, but when you're a person like yourself, I, I hope that people see the influence that that has, like you being willing to do that, to go in that class with that warden, I'm sure influenced other people to get on board as well. Well, you know, I spent a lot of my time in, in maximum security prisons, right? And eventually I would make it to that FCI. And once you made it to the FCI and I was kind of the jailhouse lawyer, I was helping people get out of prison. I was winning cases. 
So, you know, a lot of people did respect me. And like I mentioned, you know, Cedric Dean was one of the other people that really, you know, he gave me the, the, the roadmap. I mean, and people respected that cat. He had been in prison for 25 years. And, you know, they seen us doing that stuff. We started teaching programs, facilitating alternative to violence project seminars. Dudes wanted to get out of jail. And I would tell them, look, you want my help? You know, you want me to do your legal work? I would make them come to a GD, GED class that I was teaching. Um, it was a fast track GED class that I taught with, taught with Cedric Dean. So, you know, that was kind of like an incentive. You want to get out of jail, man, you got to get your GED. You got to be in this class. So, you know, not when you get to an FCI, Adam, you know this, that, you know, things are a little bit, I mean, there's still some bad things going on there, but, you know, people were starting to see that things were changing and now people wanted to get involved. They wanted to, you know, hey, oh, there is an incentive if I do the right thing. Maybe I can get out of jail. And eventually it would work out that way for a lot of folks. Well, I would say it's largely like our cases are both very well known and the work that we had to do on the inside, like very similar circumstance, right? Like what we had to compile to constitute extraordinary and compelling, which is what the U.S. Sentencing Commission is talking about, were a lot of things that those programs and opportunities aren't available in a lot of prisons. You're talking about Ray Brook. I was at McKean. Both of us got very, very lucky in landing in those FCIs because, you know, there are there's a lot of FCIs where there's nothing happening. And man, you know, for those individuals, it's much more of an individual pursuit, right? Like the programs aren't in place and, you know, people really got to go out and kind of blaze their own way. It sounds like you had Cedric Dean. I know I had people who paved the way for me, guy, Kevin McTaggart. Kev, you know, opened doors for me early on in Allenwood and did the same thing. When I got to McKean, he was there. You know, I got off the bus, literally came out of R&D, and he was like, hey, man, I got you a cell right next to me. And, and it was on from there, having those establish someone with that level of respect from both, you know what I mean, our peers and from the administration, open doors. And I, I credit him with really showing me how to interact with administrators because spending a decade in, in the pen, you know, I kept administration at arm's length, you know, like I didn't want to engage with them. So that was a challenge for me. It was interesting. I didn't know that there was a warden that you were able to connect with. And for people who don't know the system, especially the federal system, what they teach is don't ever get close to an inmate because they will manipulate you. They will try and compromise you, like keep your distance. And it is all fear-based. It is all negative. That's the majority of the people running the system. So to have access to somebody like a warden, um, a warden, it's like a fiefdom, right? They, had, they run those prisons the way they want. And you had somebody on your team rooting for you that was in that position. That must have been really, really helpful. I mean, it was. The warden was Warden Langford. He was big on rehabilitation. He was big on, I mean, I seen this cat get on his knees and helping a guy at a desk in the GD class. So he was big on that stuff. We had a reentry summit at the prison where people came from all over, you know, Oregon and California and Philadelphia. He put this big reentry summit on. I mean, the guy was really about, you know, trying to help people. So, you know, I, I appreciate that he did that. And, you know, you had talked about the guy that you had ran into. You know, I was with Cedric Dean and USP Lee. 
And he had asked me, this was probably in 2009. He's like, hey, man, I'm teaching these classes. Man, why don't you come to this class? I'm like, ah. He's like, what are you doing? They change the law and they bring back parole. You're going to go down there and tell them, hey, man, I've been carrying knives in prison. I've been, you know, selling drugs, doing this, doing that. And I said, man, I got 40 years, bro. You know, I mean, I'm trying to live my life here. I have to. And he's like, come to this Leaders Breed Leaders class. And the warden there actually made him teach the class to the prisoners and the staff. They had a prisoner teaching the classes to staff. Wow. And prison. So I went to his class. Long story short, I ended up leaving that prison. And then a couple of years later, I'm on the bus going to Raybrook and he gets on the bus. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, what's up? And he's like, hey, man, you know, I want to see you do the right thing. You made it to an FCI. He said, when we get over here, I know the education supervisor. I get you a job in education. And that's when my life started to change. So my story, I didn't know your story as far as the dude helping you out. But it's crazy that I end up on a bus to Raybrook. You end up in McKean with the same dude that you were in the pen with that was trying to help you before. And that's where, you know, where my road, you know, it changed. Wow, man. I literally, I got chills right now because I didn't, I'm always looking for those commonalities because, you know, we had this conversation earlier about literally we are each one in a million. Um, the odds of us being here right now are astronomical because we slid out of a crack this wide. And I feel that. I mean, I know I carry a great weight of responsibility every single day. And I feel that weight for all those others who were left behind because you were talking about, you know, you had a 40 year sentence, like that your release date was when? 2037, I think it was 2038. So you'd still have a couple more years to do, right? And I went in at 24, was going to come home with good time at 60. Oof. And that's, um, along with the sentences that we had, 924C sentences end up with like crazy, outrageous sentences, right? Hundreds of years. I had 213, 40. We know people have literally got hundreds of years. They're still sitting in there. Same situation. Unfortunately, you know, there there are a lot of guys. I mean, you left the guy behind um, at McKean. Ian Owens. Ian Owens. I mean, like his wife was like the the voice of the 924C stacking. They got the mercy me. And this guy deserves, you know, honestly, you know, I'll, I, I've said it before, like he probably deserves to get out of prison more than I did, you know, and, and he's still sitting in prison. Um, And I don't, you know, like just so people know, like I wrote the Conrado Cantu case as a jailhouse lawyer. That was the first compassionate release motion in the country to ever win. I wrote that from my prison cell after they had passed the first step back. I said, hey, man, I think that I'm right. And he's like, let's try it. And uh, he used to be the mayor down in Texas and the chief of police. And I got this guy, you know, and this is, a, you know, I changed my life. And this was a guy that I helped. And we, we put that together. And that was the first compassionate release motion to be granted. And he got out of prison. And of course, people like Sean Hopwood and, you know, Judge Gleason, all these people have made this argument, you know, a thousand times better. But, you know, people are getting out on that argument, thank God. People that deserve a second chance to reclaim their lives. People like yourself, people like me. Listen, I mean, they say that we're going to recidivate, what, within two years? What's the numbers? And we've been out, I've been out almost three, in June it'll be three years. I got out, I got married, I have um, two little twin boys. I actually married my ex-wife, We got remarried to her. And, um, you know, living my best life. And in, at the same time, Adam, and I know you know this is, you know, I have a paralegal and prison consultant firm. And I've gotten numerous people out of prison um, that deserve to get out 924C stacking charges. Some people might not want to hear this, but, you know, I've gotten some guys, you know, from life sentences reduced to 30. 
that actually had, you know, murders when they were 17, 18 years old. Um, and, and you know what? It's always, you know, I feel for the families and, and, and things like that of the victims. But I also believe that if you're rehabilitated, that tax dollars shouldn't be wasted on leaving you in prison. The punishment has been done. This guy's been in prison 25 years. Um, it doesn't bring back the victim, you know, or, or heal the family probably. But there are people that are in there for even violent crimes that deserve a second chance. They deserve a second look. So, Well, I, I am quick to acknowledge that I am one of those people. I am a repeat violent offender. I had prior violence, robberies in my youth, did some time in the state, got out, you know, and ended up doing the same thing again. I fell right back into the same circle. A lot of the same people, you know what I mean? So yeah. I have that experience, but I also, you know, over the course of 20 plus years, became a totally different person. And I've watched so many others like Ian Owens, um, like Ricky Tyndall, and numerous others. I mean, that list is long of individuals who've totally changed their lives. Like, we matured in prison, right? Like, you grow up, and if, if I'm being honest about it, I know for me, like, prison for the first time put me, like, gave me different responsibilities, right? Like, I had to adhere to a certain schedule. Not that I wanted to. I had to. And once I had that structure, man, I started to like put the pieces together. And for the first time in my life, like I finally came up with a plan and, and had a little bit different vision on like, okay, what do I want to do? For me, that's what it took. It took prison. I can't imagine how I get to where I am right now without it. I mean, I think, I think the same thing for me, but I think it probably took me about seven or eight years to really say, you know what, this hurts. I don't want to live like this. And I think that there's, you know, it's different for all, for all people. And I'm sure you've seen this. I think that there's a certain age. It might be 26 for you. It might be 30 for me. It might be 32 for the next guy, but something clicks and you, and you do start to mature. You do start to appreciate, I guess, what the, you know, what the framers found so important, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You start to say, you know what, that stuff matters to me. I do want to be free. I don't want to be a criminal. You know, every day I wake up five in the morning and I got these two little 15 month old twin boys and I'm like, I love these guys. I don't never want to go back there. They need me. They're my priority. But sometimes I think it does take prison. I needed prison because had I got back out, I would have probably, you know, been doing the same thing. And who knows what would have happened, where I would have been at. Might not have been here. Um, but it did take some time to learn to appreciate your freedom. And, and like we said, there's so many guys like Ian Owens. I'm working on a case now, Laval Farmer. Another guy that, you know, he got a life life plus 75 years, stack nine, 24 C's. Mm -hmm. He was 19 years old. He's been in prison 25 years. He's probably completed, in all honesty, more programs than any other prisoner I have ever seen. Will he get a chance? I think it always, you know, I think it comes down to the judge. I think Sean Hopwood mentioned this. You know, sometimes you can end up, you know, with a judge that no matter what you've done in prison, you're not getting a second chance. And, you know, I've seen him, he, he testified to that probably, uh, about a year ago, I seen him on a, on an interview, you know, Sean Hopwood, your lawyer, your good friend. Well, listen, I mean, he's got a point there. It's all relative. My issue with the majority of people in positions of authority within our criminal justice system have no good reference point, right? Like they've never spent a single night in jail. I promise you, if that was part of... <laughs> 
if that was part of the onboard training for whatever government job you had within the criminal justice system, you just had to spend a night, a night in one of those holding cells, say in a county jail, you would view time very, very differently, right? You'd have a whole different perspective one night. Let me, let me say this, right? I live in, I'm, I live in Rochester, New York. And, you know, every time I drive past that county jail, I get that same feeling. Even you just talked about it. There's a feeling that I get of loneliness and depression. And I, it's like, I can envision it, like being in that holding cell with 30 other people in a cell that's really designed for probably 15, the dirt, the urine all over the place. I mean, you know, baloney sitting on the ground and balled up bread sandwiches. And you're just like, and I, I see that, man, I envision that. And sometimes, you know, when you think about that stuff, it, it, it does, it bothers me still, you know, I still have that, um, you know what I mean? It just may, it takes you back there for a minute or two, you know? I do. I believe me. I get it. I go into the County jail every Monday morning, um, freely of my own volition, right? I work with, uh, we have a reentry unit over there that I, I helped set up right now. There's about between 40 and 50 women in there. Most times they're all, um, varying stages towards their release. Right. And my goal is to go in there and not only share my story, but to give them some, some actionable items, some things that they can be working on mm. during that time where, you know, they have to collect their thoughts and to really focus on, man, what they want to do differently when they walk out the door. And, and I often reiterate, like, I wish somebody would have done that for me. There was no one who did that for me all throughout my youth when I was in and out. You know, they taught me all the wrong things. I was programmed with, you know, all, all the bad uh, chips. And it wasn't until I met that guy, Kevin McTaggart, in the pen and you know he opened the door and gave me an option to do something different um and you know i'd like to think that showing people that there's a different way you know early on at least gives them the option man like to see what we've been able to achieve lets people know that man you do have options because i know for me when i started seeing the success like my attorney sean hopwood you know Guy was in the prison, you know, law library, found a passion for the law, gets out, goes to law school, you know, becomes an attorney and then gets recruited by Georgetown Law, one of the top law schools in the world, like frequent guests of the White House. I'm sitting in prison watching this going, man, anything is possible. You can't tell me that there is something that I cannot do on the outside because I see this guy and I've, I've got a list of other people that I've seen do amazing things. So they, the world needs to hear more of the success stories. Unfortunately, the media often portrays all of the negative and it only takes one Willie Horton, right? To scare yep. all the politicians away and convince them not to rule on certain things. So with this compassionate release, what they've effectively done is open the door to basically Others like us that had these crazy sentences are now, you know, those judges are at least going to have the opportunity. They can't say, well, I am bound. My hands are tied. I have no discretion here. They've opened that door wide enough. Yeah. You know, and, and just to kind of go back to what you were talking about, you know, as far as, you know, wishing that you had someone that could open up, you know, your mind and let you know that this is what it is. Right. 
And I, you know, I had told guys when I was leaving, I said, look, I'm going to be the voice of the voiceless. And I got out here and I put the paralegal and prison consultant firm together um, to help dudes. But also I make a living doing it. Um, and then I put that YouTube channel together, Blood on the Razor Wire. And that is, you know, you know, unfortunately, you know, people want to hear the bad. And sometimes you got to give them the bad in order to give them the message. And that's what I do on my YouTube channel. You know, the, the mission is to save kids from life imprisonment and premature death in the streets. That was the original mission, but you are, you'd be shocked to know how many dudes email me that say, hey, man, I just got out of the feds, or I've been home, man, 12, 13 months, and you know what? Your show is the reason why I put my work boots on instead of my Tims and going out there on the corner and, and, and putting a gun in my waist and you know bagging up some dope. Like, your show keeps me focused. It makes me not you know, ever forget where I was at. And you know, I think a lot of them guys and women get that same feeling. You know, I said about that county jail, and, and sometimes you need that. Sometimes you need that that slap to that wake up call, you know. So, and then as far as the compassionate release goes, this is the deal. You know, the sentencing commission has now given the authority to federal judges to be judges again. A lot of people don't realize that that federal judges weren't really able to judge. They said, "Hey, look, there's the guideline. These are the points, and I have to give you, you know, 480 months because that's your mandatory minimum." But now federal judges can take a second look, which it's needed. They can take a second look and say, you know what? I think Adam Clawson changed his life, and I'm going to give him a shot. And look what happened. Your judge gave you a shot, and, I mean, you're out here. You're doing big things. I've seen you're meeting with the BOP director. You, you know, you're testifying in front of the sentencing commission. You know, so that's important. My judge, I'm going to be straight up, Adam. My judge, you know, my judge wrote me a letter. He wrote me a letter, you know, saying, hey, look, you're doing the right thing. And then a couple months ago, he says, I want to meet with you and your wife and, and your kids. Oh, and man. my judge is Judge Laramrod of the Western District of New York, Republican appointee. And I went to his chambers and I met with my judge. And he said, look, man, I went out on a limb for you. You know, you're out here. You, you seem like you're doing the right thing. And I want you to continue to do that. You know, this wasn't an easy decision for me to make. But I made it and you're doing great. And, and I'm proud of you. Just keep doing the right thing. And you know what? That meant a lot to me, man. I respect that man more than anyone, any any adult male that I've ever respected in my life. I respect him. And I knew that, you know, he had to sentence me. I was a bad dude at one time. I, I deserved to go to prison. I didn't deserve 40 years, but I definitely deserved to go to prison. And I also believe that I, you know, I deserved a second chance. And he gave me that opportunity. But there's a lot more Adam Clausens, a lot more Chad Marxes sitting in federal prison that deserve a second chance. Ian Owens at the top of the list. Absolutely. And and I want to point out back to your judge, Larimer, you know, sitting in prison, watching cases come through, reading these opinions of judges, you can kind of see where they land, right? Uh, judge Gleason, like holding on to hope for all those years. I'm like, man, this is the guy because he wrote the blueprint in the Holloway case that you know, for those of us that had these crazy senses, we're like, oh my God, somebody finally, somebody with some sense sees that, you know, these sentences are crazy. And then when he left, goes into private practice, becomes an advocate. It's like, man, finally someone from that side has come over basically to our side to be an advocate. And I want to point out for those judges, for your judge, Larimer, for Obviously, for Gleason, he gave up his job to do this. For my judge, uh, Gerald Pappert, the courage that it takes 
to rule on a case like ours to grant us compassionate release because, okay, here's ideally federal judges are a lifetime appointment, right? And we say it's done that way to, to shield them from any outside influence so they can rule the way that they want to rule. That's not the reality. Judges have aspirations as well. And if they want to move up, they need what's called a blue slip. Blue slip is the political part where they have to get that from their state representatives in order to move up to the next level, to be an appellate court judge. You know, there is politics there. And I promise you that every time they make a decision, whether they uh, acknowledge it or not, in the back of their mind, they're like, man, if I give this guy a shot and he goes out and does something, that's going to affect me. Like I might be stuck in this position. I may never go any further. That's a reality. And you, you know, you, it is a reality. And you spoke about judge Gleason. So I want to kind of give people an idea who he is. He is the guy that prosecuted John Gotti. He was mm-hmm. assistant U S attorney under Giuliani and he prosecuted him. He then became a federal judge for 23 years, stepped off the bench, um, and decided to help people. And actually he was my lawyer. Um, you know, I had filed some stuff pro se. I had wrote Harlan Protus. For those that don't know who he is, he was Holloway's lawyer. You know, the Holloway doctrine, which you were just talking about. And Judge Gleason ended up reducing this guy's sentence. But first he had asked the attorney, he had asked um, the U.S. attorney to do that, Loretta Lynch, who would later on become the attorney general for Obama. And they were bucking. They were like, no, we're not going to do this. And he kind of said, well, I might have to, you know, take a look at some of this post-conviction stuff that he filed, this 60B. And then they decided, you know what, we think he does deserve a second chance judge. And we're going to agree to, you know, to vacate, you know, one of these 924C sentences and you can resentence him. And, and eventually Gleason does that. And, you know, he commends the U.S. Attorney's Office for doing the right thing. But they didn't want to do the right thing at first. Right. And they did it because I think there was some pressure. But I'm glad that they did it because it did open the door. You know, people started saying, oh, wow. And then all the stuff that they were submitting to the Sentencing Commission Hold up. while what, we what, were in prison. What year was that? The Holloway case? Yep. Wow, oh, 2000. Let me think. It's early. 13? 13, I, right after Laffler versus Cooper, Missouri I, versus Fry, 2013. I, I thought it was even earlier than that. Just, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say 13 or 14. Okay, just to put it in perspective, like we're talking about this is a legal battle that has gone on for decades. Like the results that we're seeing now. Is, is decades long. Like when we came in, I know 2000, uh, when I walked in the door, first of all, nobody was talking about criminal justice reform. Certainly nobody was going to reduce a sentence, right? It was all about being tough on crime. And when my appeal became final in 2005, that was it. There was no chance of parole. There was no hope for relief. We had to either get Congress to change the law or get a president to sign a commutation reducing the sentence. And at, at that time, like that was the furthest thing that wasn't even realistic, right? So again, you were in that same position. I've talked about this before. Having that belief and, and holding on to that hope when really there was very, very little reason to hold on to hope at that time. This was a decades-long battle. You know, like, like you said, I mean, there was little hope, but excuse me. One of the first things like I had always thought, well, maybe I used to say this, you know, because I was reading the law 
I said, you know, maybe in 20 years someone will give me clemency. You know, that that was my hope at, at one point in time, Adam. Yeah. It was something that I had held on to. And then, you know, things did start to change. They changed, you know, the crack law. Um, that changed a little bit. Then they changed it again. And I'm like, okay. Then Obama started talking about the clemency project. I'm like, okay. And I did a couple dudes clemencies while I was in prison. Um, and one of them was a, was a dude that was involved in a bunch of, he got clemency. He was involved in a bunch of stuff in prison. He was a blood gang member, assault on staff. And, and Obama granted his clemency. And on the same day that they granted his clemency, he's like, yo, bro, they just granted my stuff. I was in education with him. And uh, then my unit team had called me up there and they said, hey, man, they denied you today. And my unit team, like, really kind of cared about me. Like, the lady felt bad. They felt bad for me. And I was like, wow, this dude got it. And I didn't, you know, and I'm the dude that wrote his stuff. So he ended up getting clemency. And then I was like, wow, man, all hope's gone. And then, and I wrote an article, and I think it was in the Criminal Legal News or the Prisoner's Legal News. And, uh, and FAM might have published it. I talked about, you know, standing at the window that night when Trump was elected and I started to cry, but not just for me, but for everybody else, because I thought it was over with, you know, another four years, maybe eight years, you know, tough stance on, you know, criminals and crime. And, and then eventually under that administration, and a lot of it had to do with Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump and at, you know, they were burning the midnight oil, you know, and Trump contacts McConnell and says, look, I want this to happen. And, you know, that's because Jared and Ivanka were probably really pushing them. Mm-hmm. And they end up pushing it through. And Sean Hopwood, your lawyer, was another, you know, major contributor. I, I know that he doesn't like to admit to that, but you know, he, you know, he he was a, he was the voice for the voiceless. Mm-hmm. And eventually they did it and they did something that I never thought would ever happen. And when they passed that first step act, you know, I, I was reading that thing like looking for something. <laughs> Something's gonna save me. Look, they they changed the 924C, but they didn't make it retroactive. And I'm in the law library with Chris Hunter. And, you know, Chris had 35 years and just got out on the CARES Act, thank God. And, I, and I'm thinking, man, this is it, bro. I didn't know all, I didn't know everything, but I see it. And I'm like, this is it. I think that we can get out this way. And I had wrote Brandon Sample, another former federal prisoner that's now a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And he says, look, man, 1B1.13 is going to be the hurdle. And I saved those emails. You know, I kept them. And I said, no, man, I think you're wrong. And we did that Conrado Cantu case and we sent that in. And, you know, he granted it and it wasn't, it was, it was not a really great piece of work, but it was just like, this is what I think. And, and his judge granted it in Texas. And after that, I mean, it just took off after that. Then Erkovich with the 924 C's, eventually me, then eventually you. And, you know, like you said earlier, so people can get a perspective. You know, my judge granted my motion. The day that it was granted, they started telling me to pack my stuff. I was leaving in the morning. Yep. And they said, oh, hold on. We made a mistake. We miscalculated your good time. So they went back and I said, okay, you're getting out in, you know, two months or whatever. So on that day when I'm getting out, my family comes to the prison uh, to pick me up. They're walking me out. He says, you got clothes. They, you know, I've been around a long time. He's like, if you got clothes, I'll do you first. I said, no, I don't have no clothes. My family's just, you know, they, they're coming to get me and they got clothes in the vehicle and I'm going to go to a hotel. And he's like, all right, I'm going to do these guys. that got clothes and then I'll get you. So I'm like the fourth or fifth dude and they're walking me out and they call on the walkie talkie. And I knew it, bro. I knew it. I just had that. You ever have a feeling and you're right? And they said, stop him. Mm-hmm. There's an appeal. Stop him. Do not open that gate. I was literally maybe 10, 12 feet away from the gate. I had already walked through one of the gates. And they stopped me, man. And they put in an appeal. And then I talked to Gleason and Marissa Taney, who's a phenomenal, was a, you know, she was over there at the office with them. Another phenomenal attorney, Elizabeth Costello, big props to her. Another phenomenal attorney over there with Gleason. And they're like, look. 
you're you're going to be stuck in here. You're not going to get out. You're going to be here until the duration of the appeal. And you know, this is probably going to go to the Supreme Court too. So you know, I'm you know, I'm sorry, but you you got you're probably going to be there for another year or two. And you know, it might not work out if it goes to the Supreme Court. And we had these conversations. So they ended up filing an, an immediate appeal, you know, and my judge said, you know, on the eve of, you know, on the eve of his release, you know, the government appeals when you had all these months to do it before he got out and he kind of bashed the government. And then two weeks later, I ended up winning that appeal and I was released. Um, and eventually they ended up dropping their appeal altogether. Um, and thank God they dropped the appeal. That was um, right around the time when, when Booker came out, um, Jeremy Zulo. Very good friend of mine who I also helped out. And, uh, you know, that came down out of the Second Circuit and they dropped the appeal. And, and thank God I got a second chance at life. And the scary part is this, Adam. Like, you know, I re, like I said, I remarried my ex wife, right? It was almost as if, I mean, it was almost as if I couldn't have a life. You know, I could not have a life at the time because I didn't know if I was going back to jail. Oh. I didn't want to mess her life up. And I'm thinking, wow. I can't get a vehicle because I can't have a car payment because if I ever went to jail, you know, all this stuff would be blown. I can't get a house and get a mortgage. But, you know, like I said, eventually things would work out, man. And these are, you know, this is my motivation, Adam. These are my two little boys when they were just about yes. months old. But uh, beautiful boys, best dad ever. And that's what I aspire to be, man, the best dad ever, bro. You know, me and you will both be in first place because I know you got a little boy too. <laughs> That's what it's all about, man. I'm telling you, you know, I was explaining to somebody yesterday when you've been through what we've been through, we live with a different sense of appreciation that others will just probably never know. And those two sure. boys right there talk about motivation. Man, I'm gonna, I want to back up for one second because, you know, in the beginning, I kind of teased that story. I didn't want to talk about it. I wanted to hear it from you getting all the way to the door your family's out there listen i heard about that and i hurt like it hurt my heart and i was like oh my god how do they do that to somebody and then when i got immediate release when i tell you i had envisioned what this was going to be like you know you dream about this because I believed it was going to happen. Like, I'm getting out of here one day. This is what it's going to be like when I walk out the door. And all of a sudden, you know, they came and they got me. And I remember watching the case manager come with the guy from R&D. And I see him walking. They got to get through the door. And they're looking at me. But they're like expressionless. And I'm like, is this it? Is this it? Because I'm waiting on the results from the court. And they come to me. They're like, so, you ready to go? I'm like, what do you what are you talking about? They're like, you want to go? I'm like, don't play with me. <laughs> They're like, you got immediate release. And I'm like, get the, seriously? I was like, oh my. And I'm like stuck. And everything in me like wanted to like jump and be excited. But you had just gotten stopped on the way out the door. So like, I couldn't, I couldn't get that excitement up. Everything that had been in my mind was on pause. And I'm like, until I walk out the door, until I get in that car with my wife, like, I, I just, I'm not going to believe that this is actually going to happen. I, w I couldn't. And ultimately, that immediate release was an immediate release. You know, they, the BOP played around for three days, tried to get me to sign because they didn't do their job. And 
you know, as a guy with a life sentence, they weren't doing progress reports. They didn't change my release address. They had my arrest address. Listen, I don't know who lives there over in Jersey, but it wasn't me. And I sure as hell wasn't going to sign that paper after fighting for 20 years to get that release. I wasn't going to sign off to something that I knew wasn't true. And that's what they wanted me to do. So we fought for three days. And here's where I, I, I don't think I've ever told you this. Finally, we get there and Sean, my attorney's on the phone. He winds up getting the judge involved. So now everybody's pissed off. They won't even talk to me as I'm leaving, but they get me to R and D and I'm like, you know what? Whatever. They've called my wife. I'm down there with my cart, all my books, books you see behind me and many, many more, my notebooks, everything. And I'm out there. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I see her coming. I'm like, oh my God, it's real. It's real. I was like, okay. She gets all the way there gets out of the car, comes around, and I'm just like, oh, my God. I come around, and I hug her, and I'm holding on to her, and I don't want to let go. And this cop's walking out because it's shift change. He goes, hey, Clawson, they want you back inside. The death grip that Roe put on me, like, he was joking, and he didn't know anything about your situation or what's in my mind, in, in our mind. But, my God, both of our hearts dropped in that moment. I'm like, Oh, you got to be kidding me, man. There's, there's no way. I'm like, do we just get in the car and go, man? I was like, yeah. no, you can't take this. And I turn and I look and he's laughing. And I'm like, man, that wasn't funny. That was the only guy who talked to me that day on the way out. And it was to make a joke. So we got in the car and got out of there. And like, it's still that whole day didn't feel real because I kept thinking that they were coming to bring me back in. Well, I'm glad that you're free, man. And I know you're, you know, you're doing big things and you're helping a lot of people and the reentry things phenomenal. You know, you're honestly people that don't know you. I can attest that man, you're a really good dude. We actually had some disagreements over emails through someone else. I don't know if you remember <laughs> that through me, where you're like, yo, you're trying to push this. And you know, this doesn't help guys that, you know, are second time offenders. And I was like, I'm sorry, buddy, but I, you know, I'm a first time nine twenty four offender. I'm trying to get out of here. Well, I need this bill to pass. Yeah, and we man. Went back and forth, and I remember those, you know, arguments through the computer, and then eventually, you know, we would talk, and you know, you came on my on my podcast on my YouTube channel for an interview, and you know, I really appreciate you, and I appreciate the work that you're doing, and you know, for you to be able to go in front of the sentencing commission, and and talk and and testify, and for you to talk to the, the new BOP director. You need people in there to do that, that have intelligence. They won't ever invite me because I'm a little bit, um, I, I don't know, rough around the edges. I'm going to speak my mind and I'm a little bit boisterous and, you know, people that they know that, you know, and, and we need that. We need that know, voice. Been, we need that voice as well. You know, I'm, I, you know, I'm very respectful dude and they should bring me once in a while. Because well, I, I, I'll tell you this, I'll give you my word that whatever I can do to get you involved in those conversations, I will without a doubt, because I appreciate, I see everything that you're doing as well. And I know your motivation. I know those two little boys and man, listen, we need many, many more individuals like us to step up, to be those examples, um, to inspire the courage that's needed for these judges to keep making these decisions because now they can do it, right? Yes. And you know what? I don't think they have to wait till November. 
I think, you know, um, the sentencing commission is appointed by Congress. I think that they have, you know, effectively said, look, you know, that rule, that ruling in McCall in the Sixth Circuit. No, I mean, that's overruled now. The Bryant case down there in, in the 11th Circuit that Sean Hopwood, you know, argued and, and worked, you know, extremely hard on. I think that overturns that. I think people should know that I think that, you know, you know, not on not on no Republican hating stuff or Democrats or anything, but you know, obviously you could see from the sentencing commission votes that they're gonna be pushing, you know, against that, you know, becoming law in November. Mm-hmm. I think that that's that's coming. And you know, how is it gonna pan out? And you know, they should think about this. And I'm just gonna give it to you real, and it's wrote in that Holloway case. You know, African Americans are disproportionately destroyed based on 924C stacking. You can't possibly say that this law is wrong. It's wrong, but we're not going to make it retroactive. It's only going to affect the guys that get arrested now. It's not going to affect the guys, the fathers and the mothers that are sitting in prison, the Ian Owens guys, you know, the people like Laval Farmer. It doesn't affect them. How does it not? If the law is wrong, then the law is wrong. That's it. Plain and simple. It should affect everybody. Same thing with the 851 enhancements. They said it was wrong in the first step back, but it doesn't apply to the people already in prison. It only applies to the new guys. If it's wrong, it's wrong. So, you know, I think judges should really look at that stuff and say, you know what? I'm going to do the right thing here. I'm going to give this guy a shot. I'm going to give him a chance, especially if they show, you know, hey, look, I am rehabilitated. I have changed my life. And taxpayers should appreciate that because you shouldn't be wasting taxpayer dollars on over-incarcerating people that are rehabilitated where the punishment has been done and there's nothing left but suffering. And I wrote that to my judge, man. I used to write my judge letters and tell them the punishment's over. The rehabilitation's been done. There's nothing left but suffering. I'm suffering. Mm-hmm. And I think it, you know, it, it rang it rang to his ears. And eventually, you know, he would give me a second chance and I'm doing everything I can with it. Well, thankfully we both got these second chances. And man, it's been a privilege to spend this time with you. I'm so grateful that we were able to get you on here on Gridability today. Is there anything that you want to promote on the way out the door? Any other uh, pages? Tell us about your social media. Well, um, you know, I got my book kind of halfway in that background, but people can check out this book. It's called Blood on the Razor Wire. Um, the first three chapters are free on Amazon. Go check it out. I promise you won't be disappointed. It actually sold out the first day. And um, people say they can read it in a day, day and a half. They can't put it down. Also, I you know, I have a, a YouTube channel, Blood on the Razor Wire. I've interviewed former federal judges on there, um, former gang members, current gang members, people in prison, um, actual, actually interviewed a, a DEA agent, an active DEA agent, former FBI agent. We do a lot of things over there. I interviewed you. I interviewed the judge that went to the White House to visit with Trump with Kim Kardashian. But the mission is to save kids from life imprisonment and premature death in the streets. And also now to give dudes a reminder and, and, and women, men and women, a reminder that this is what it's like in there. Don't ever forget it. Keep doing the right thing. You know, if all you're doing is going to work and able to pay your bills and order a pizza, you know what? It's better than being in prison and working in the chow hall for eight cents an hour. So, so check us out, Blood on the Razor Wire TV on YouTube, Freedom Fighters Paralegal and Prison Consultant Firm, and the Blood on the Razor Wire, you know, book on Amazon. All Definitely right. appreciate Chad, we appreciate having you here, man. It's been another incredible episode of gridability power of perseverance overcoming seemingly insurmountable odds to attain the life of your dreams i'm your podcast host adam clausen and we will see you back here on the next episode